Well, apparently, if you win a Grammy, you have to sign a contract which forbids you to sell it. Oh, wow. They have to, they keep you. It's like buying a yeah. Ferrari. Like you can't yeah, edit yeah. it. Yeah, you're not allowed. Well, you're not allowed to sell it, at least. You could probably edit it. But... <laughs> Chop it into a million bits and make tiny little Grammys out of it. Yeah, you're like, it's no longer technically the Grammy because I cut it in two with a band source and now I'm allowed to sell it. <laughs> like, the contract <laughs> is void. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm free now. Freedom! Hello and welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. My name is Robert Fumo. We have a hell of a show for you today. We have Seth Drake. Seth Drake is a mixing and mastering engineer who has worked with artists such as Method Man, Killer Mike, Big Boy, Gucci Mane, Tiesto, Steve Aoki, Noisia, G. Jones, worked with labels such as Interscope, Spinning Music, and the Warner Music Group, worked on movies such as The Fast and the Furious, Resident Evil, worked in the game industry, League of Legends, NBA 2K, Forza Horizon, the list goes on. He's an incredible engineer. He's working all over the place, many different genres and many different industries in audio. Also, he's got a program providing tutorials on his mixing mastering technique. If you head over to theapproachinstitute.com, he's got a full-fledged mixing and mastering course that you can take. Also, head over to mrbillstoos.com for all of your music production education needs. Mr. Bill has a subscription-based tutorial service with thousands of hours of content and will take you to the next level with the quickness and on the cheap. So mrbillstunes.com and Seth Drake's The Approach Institute and go platinum. So I'm going to let you get to this chat with Seth Drake and Mr. Bill. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Go for it. Uh, so yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, my name is Seth Drake. Uh, I am a mixing, mastering, engineer, producer, designer, and at this point, like 18 million other hats that I've begun wearing over the years. Uh, so from like building studios, uh, designing technology. Uh, at this point, we're even um, the uh, me and a few other engineers uh, are starting a that's going to use uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in the music sphere. Uh, we do. I also <laughs> represent uh, a company called Cup and String. That's like a retail end that does like high end audio gear and, in particular, key speakers. Um, and a few other pieces like Trinoff. Um, and then I also, uh, I am the president of a nonprofit organization called the Approach Institute, which is uh, basically the, it is all of my engineering and technical skills kind of put into a course format that we originally were online uh, selling. And now we've gone and become a nonprofit 
which is actually about to launch um, here in the next few months. I think we're basically, the roadmap for us is really short, but it's going to come online here shortly. And then it'll be like super low cost, like I think like $4 a month to get an audio engineering educational um, certificate that'll basically get you to the point where you can do your own mixing and mastering at home. Uh, so we're pretty stoked. There's a lot of different things going on, but that's, that's the basics of who I am. And then what I've done over the years, I mean, that's, you just got a little bit of a snippet of it, but I've worked with artists, uh, ranging from like Tom Morello, excuse me, um, working with artists ranging from like people like Tom Morello, Big Boy, uh, Gucci Min, Rick Ross, uh, the Deftones, uh, Primus into all the EDM stuff, uh, like the Glitch Mob, Zed's Dead, Bass Nectar, um, and now into some more pop-oriented things like Set It Off, Chase Atlantic, Star Set, and I mean, that's just like a piece. But like, yeah, I've done a lot of work over the years, been at this for, I'd say about the last 15 years of my life, pretty much full-time. Yeah, nice. Uh, how, do, how do you actually get into a position in the music industry where you're known as like a mix engineer and you have uh, clients like, you know, Big Boy and Tom Morello and Bass Nectar and stuff like that? Like, how does that, how, how do those kind of relationships come about? Because I mean, obviously anybody now can go online, download a copy of whatever Fruity Loop Studio. And I mean, sure shit, there's like 16 year old kids out there who are just shitting on me in terms of like how, <laughs> how, how loud and clean their stuff sounds, you know? Yeah, so they it's don't like, care. They really don't care. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, they must because their shit sounds great. But like- um, I mean about the rules. No, they're shredding it. They're shredding it when it comes to what their output is for sure. Right, um, right. So, I mean, like in my opinion, like any of those kids' mixdowns are like just as good as mine, um, and yeah, I mean, like how how would you go from I guess being at that level of like being able to produce loud, clean, crazy sounding shit to going to like a client like Big Boy and being like, I want to mix your stuff, or, or having them reach out to to you and be like, uh, we want you to mix our stuff. Like, how does that all come about? Uh, well, I think that there's there's two pieces to it. The first one, obviously, is like a technical understanding of things. Like, and there's a big difference between, you know, working on your own stuff and working on other people's, especially because of like just the differentiations in workflow. Or like you just mentioned, there's like 16 million fucking DAWs out there. And, um, you know, which is good for you or which is good for a specific application, like obviously is TBD. But the first piece, obviously, is, is understanding how to work material and be really consistent so that you do know, like, if you do end up with a big client or just anybody that you're looking to really impress, and obviously you should be really cognizant of, like, what you're trying to do and, and you know, do a good job anyways. But it, the pressure's on, obviously, when you do end up in one of those situations. And so then being able to reliably deliver, not just on, like, a qualitative front, um, but in quantity and in some sort of predictable amount of time, I think those are the, the f- sort of the first pieces of it. And then it, it, it comes down to relationships that you build. It really, it really is like there's, I think once you're at a specific level of, um, of quality, there's, there's not much room to go. I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your own work when maybe you've um, taken it as far as you can go and given you know, your, your understanding of your skill level, that you maybe you want to see what someone else can do with it. And then turns out that they're either exactly in the same place as you, or maybe the quality is a little bit worse, or maybe they're improved on one or two axes, but like for the rest of it, it's, it's actually worse. Um, or they've, or they've leveraged certain elements over other ones. You're like, Oh, the drums are a little more forward in this, or maybe there's a little bit more punch, but I'm losing some more low end or they've gotten loudness, but at a cost. 
So you realize there's like a limit to how far you can take the material based upon like what the source content is. And it's another like kind of misconception I think about engineering in general is that like, oh, like we'll fix it in the mix or, oh, like, you know, their engineer is really who's doing all the work. But in reality, it's like it comes down to the low level assets. It's like your music writing and your production that dictate sort of how good a mix or master can come about. So it really, once you get good enough, it really just comes down to, and, and, and consistent enough, it just comes down to like who you know and the relationships that you build and, and your availability. Because even now, you know, getting some of the clientele that I have, part of the deal is, you know, if, for instance, like just recently, um, you know, LS Dream shows up and is like, hey, I'm doing this thing and, you know, I'd like to see what you can do with it. And I'm like, yeah, sweet let's see what we can do. And then turns out our schedules don't line up and then that doesn't happen. So it's one of those things like where you, it's, it's not just how good you are or who you know, but then it also becomes like what your availability is. And if you're willing to kind of like live the life, if that makes sense. Right. Right. But I'm assuming like somebody like LS dream came to you for either mixing or mastering work because they'd heard that you'd uh, done some prior work and and therefore knew that you had the resume uh, and obviously ability to be able to do something that they thought would benefit um, their next album or EP or single or whatever. Uh, so, I mean, I guess like going back to the start, how did those relationships like start for you and then how did they build up to the point of having people like LS Dream know that you're the guy to come and approach for stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been just kind of like slow relationship building. So in the start of it, like I, I guess I lucked out in EDM. I went to a uni in Amsterdam with um, uh, a guy named Sam Poole, who at the time his producer name was SPL, but now he's rebranded and become Champagne Drip. And um, he was into like dark drum and bass at the time. And so him and I kind of headed off just like in college going to audio engineering school uh, where we were both pretty disenfranchised with the curriculum and like our access or availabilities there to like more of like the regular music business for him for more EDM shit separate from like house music. Uh, Cause obviously the Dutch are like the kings of queens of house music um, and myself for just like greater music business, sort of like producer stuff, uh, like traditional producer stuff. So we just kind of hung out and hit it off. And I learned a shit ton of stuff from him just when it came to like how to process stuff or hit things hard, or we were always pushing loudest, like back in the day, this is like 2005, 2006. Um, and then from there, you know, um, kind of just kept hitting the bricks with electronic, having a hard time finding any kind of work, but just began just taking on clients. Like I remember there was, um, the first thing that I mastered, I got the job because I was standing next to a guy who said no to it. Literally like they brought him, uh, it was a, an EP, it was a contest that they were doing that the school was kind of helping out with. And one of the lead supervisors, this guy, Leslie, uh, an amazing engineer, a Brit uh, from Dover, uh, really appreciate his insights and his ears. He taught me a lot as well. And they, they asked him if he wanted to do it. And he was like, what kind of music is it? And they're like, oh, it's house. And he's like, no, no, thanks. <laughs> and so they just literally turned and looked at me and were like, do you know how to master? And I was like, yes. And I had never done it. And so I guess maybe that's another key point of this is like, don't be afraid to just like take on jobs, like say you're available and start trying stuff and don't charge people and just literally begin trying and seeing if you can do it and working really hard to hone your craft. That was, that's actually, I guess like a big piece of it is just like I took on and I still do like a lot of spec work. A lot of these bigger artists 
um, when they do show up, like they're not going to, they're going to say, Hey, I got a record, but like, we want to try you out to see if you're a good fit first. So we'll probably just do a single with you and see how that goes. And sometimes that's like paid. And sometimes it's not even to this day. Sometimes I'll take a hit on that just to see if we can get the client. So it really just comes down to like saying yes to stuff and getting your word out there and like, you know, trying your best, which can suck, especially like it's, it's a luxury to have if you can not get paid to work. But that's part of like this, this, the, the rough and tumble of the business that we're in, you know, especially like getting your name out there. Right. Right. So at that time, somebody came up to you and like, Hey, this guy doesn't want to master my shit. Do you know how to master? And you said, yes, that means you basically at that moment, perhaps even before that moment, classed yourself as a mastering engineer. Uh, what do you think it is that, uh, at what point do you think you have to be at to be like, yeah, I'm a mastering engineer. I know how to master. Like, uh, what, uh, what, what class is you as a mastering engineer? And at what point do you think you're uh, um, like uh, allowed to believe that you are with any sort of validity? <laughs> I still don't believe that I'm, <laughs> I still don't believe I'm, I'm a mastering engineer. There's so much, I think that there's, it's just for me, it's a gradient. There's, there's a limit. There's, there's no limit to all of the things that I can take in and learn. I keep getting like, even just the other day, um, I was over hanging out with, um, Billie Eilish's mastering engineer, this guy, John Greenham, who's just an absolute G and he was showing me, um, a bunch of different shit that he does to the signal path that was like completely blowing my mind when it came to the rules that he was operating under. Like he, like he had, he's gone like so past anything that we would imagine like like are you like able to share any of oh absolutely yeah yeah so like one of them was one of the things that really blew my mind was he'll have uh asymmetrical left and right so left and right which is like something that you get taught like whatever you fucking do don't eq left and right differently but like he has an outboard setup that he runs with two pull techs, uh, one for left and one for right. And these are just regular old pull techs. Like they're not modified to have stepped uh, potentiometers, meaning like he can't recall settings that are locked. It's just this like, you know, the, not infinite potentiometer, but just a normal pot that has, you know, a, 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 an infinite gra a gradient of settings. And he'll just set them where he thinks they sound okay. And that's it. So he'll like pan the signal hard left, EQ that one, pan the signal hard right, EQ that one, and then just put them back together? Yeah, pretty much. Well, it's like not, instead of panning, he's, out, he's outputting a stereo through a set of converters. I think they're Lavery converters. And he's outputting from the Lavery into the Poltex. And then the Poltex are left and right. And each individual unit, there's no sync between them. There's no lock. There's no way of, even if you put the knobs exactly in the same place, they're this like ancient tech from the 70s. So even then it's not like calibrated. It's not, and I asked him, I was like, is this calibrated or like, how are you? And he's like, I don't know. It's just, it's like, I just like it. It just opens up the signal. Yeah. Probably be like concerned maybe about like phase issues with timing and stuff like that, right? If the signal's coming back in like a few milliseconds apart, but I'm assuming you could probably just record them back into the digital world and line them back up. And I'm yeah, I don't think he's, he probably... I don't think he's wet drying it. Yeah. I think it's just like the full master. It's, it's both, it's full output, like an insert. So there's no blend. So it doesn't matter if there's a little bit of timing delay in the signal path, even though it is analog and the conversions, like I, I would know that there would be definitely some issues trying to line that up with a dry, but it's just, if it's the full chain and it's just left and right, it's just left has a different set of treatment than right does. Right, right. But I thought the point you were trying to make there is that because they're like these old sort of systems that are not.
not really like calibrated properly and stuff that the left and the right channel would then get recorded back in like with a slight discrepancy in the timing. Yeah, I mean, that that is a possibility if like amp slew rates or whatever might be. I mean, I don't think the signal path is like any different in length. I think all of his cabling and everything is equidistant and I think all of the internal components are the same. But again, you just... You just never know. Either way, like he's definitely, it's impossible for him to treat in this scenario, it's impossible for him to treat left and right the exact same. So if he's. That's a interesting. I've never even thought about that. Like if you have two cables running your left and right channels back into something, unless those cables are the exact same length, that technically could potentially be a slight discrepancy in timing. Yeah, not even technically could, but definitely. Yeah, I mean, the there's the guys at CERN when they wanted to add a delay when they're doing these high speed collisions of particles. When they want to add a delay, they just add a foot of cable, and I think the foot of cable gives you, or a meter of cable, because of the speed of light, it gives you like one nanosecond or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but the uh, you can look up the math. It's 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 a it, that is how they would instead of trying to like calculate the digital delay down to these like infinite um, infinite in, infinitudes, they would just add a, a a specific length of cable, and they would get the exact delay they needed just from physics. Yeah, that's wild. That's actually also why um, processors are in the middle of a motherboard. Like if you look at a like if you've ever built a PC, mm, the processor mm. goes right in the middle of the motherboard. It's so it's like equidistant to all of the other components. Because, yeah, it makes sense. Like you don't want the, you know, processor all the way over in the right-hand corner and then, you know, it's taking longer to reach stuff down the bottom left-hand corner. Yeah, cuz timing and all this stuff just matters. I mean, obviously the the sync between all of the different processes is sort of how the computer works. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense, but in this scenario, like, you know, the guy's winning Grammy awards for mastering um and yeah, do you he's think doing it's really it's, the mastering though, or do you think it's Billie Eilish making these crazy tunes? Um, I mean, it very well could be both. Like, I think like John, like seeing him work and understanding what he's doing, um, I got to give him credit. Like there's, it's, it, some of the stuff that he does, I, I, I mean, I find not only enthralling, but like wonderful to listen to. So oh, totally. But I mean, part of that has to be the input, right? It's like yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that same guy could master, you know, one of my records and it's not going to win any Grammys. <laughs> this is true. But now we're getting into like whether or not like what is the actual value of the Grammys, right? Like what's... Oh, 100% it's the music, man. Yeah. Like the yeah well, giving the, and... well, who, who's giving Grammys out for mastering? It's not mastering engineers, right? It's like people are into music. Sure. Like the, but, the people but... giving out any awards for sort of mastering and stuff would probably be like the Audio Engineering Society and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, but even then, I mean, like, we just, like, we can get into Beyonce winning a Grammy for best EDM, you know, record. I don't know that Mm. the Grammys have the best, um, you know, I don't know that they are the best. No offense to all of my friends at the Grammys, but, I I mean, (laughs) we've had this conversation before, actually, with some of my friends who are over there, and I don't know that they have a great understanding of electronic music in general. So, and I guess Mm. in pop music also, I mean, even same with Beyonce, you know, I mean, she lost with Lemonade and I think that record, all the work that she did and the whole team did with that is phenomenal. So I don't know that the Grammys do a really great job, um, actually honoring things based upon their technicals or the artistry. I think it's a lot of it is just kind of like, not just like a popularity contest, but like a name recognition thing. It's like, oh, I don't know who any of these people are, but I'll just vote for the people that I know or from my camp, you know? Yeah, who, how, how do you win a Grammy? Is it off votes from like a panel or is it based on public opinion? Or I've never actually looked into it. The way that I understand it is it's the Recording Academy has like their 
basic, like the, anybody that's part of the According Academy can vote on the Grammys. And I believe the voting is anonymized. Um, but from there, I don't exactly know how they quantify those votes. What I do know is when they've interviewed people who voted, they've said that, you know, a lot of times they just vote for names that they recognize, you know, it's like their friends. It's like, you know, oh, like uh, Maserati, um, you know, mix this record or, you know, Bob Ludwig mastered this. And so I'm going to vote for that because I know they do good work and I know them uh, as mm. opposed to, you know. Apparently to get a Grammy, the song must contain melody and lyrics and it must either be a new song or a song first achieving prominence during the eligibility year. Uh, and then it says something about like vote tabulation and Grammy winners being announced at the Grammy Awards, but I don't know who's tabulating these votes. Yeah, that's another piece of it that's like a little opaque, I guess, from the outset. It just seems like they would be... It's not the best system. I mean, even if it is, it's like I don't know that most of these people... The, the work required... It's kind of like the same thing, which is like voting in your constituency at home. It's like it takes, if you really want to be educated and an educated voter, you can spend weeks learning about all of the different candidates compared to like, if you're just voting along party lines, if you're well, like, apparently these if you win a Grammy, you have to sign a contract, which forbids you to sell it. Oh, wow. They have to, they keep you. It's like buying a yeah. Ferrari, like you can't yeah, edit yeah. it. Yeah. You know, like, well, you're not allowed to sell it. At least you could probably edit it, but <laughs> chop it into a million bits and make tiny little Grammys out of it. Yeah, you're like it's no longer technically the Grammy because I cut it in two with a bandsaw, so now I'm allowed to sell it. <laughs> like the contract <laughs> is void. <laughs> yes, I'm free now. Freedom. Um, yeah, yeah. So you're talking before about like being able to reliably uh, achieve results. Um, so I assume that. Uh, has some sort of like systematic process uh, entwined with it. Do you, do you have like any sort of like go-to processes that you use every time to try and achieve reliable masters for people? Um, yeah, in fact, it's what the, like the basis of uh, the Approach Institute, the school that I was talking about before, is sort of founded on is this methodology. Um, I am not a big fan of templates or even workflows. I think that all of that stuff gets you into trouble as soon as you're dealing with like severe edge cases. Um, so I have a process that basically helps me quantify and qualify the material. So there's this sort of like the best way for me to like kind of put it in context is it's like, I, I want to know why I'm making the moves that I'm making. It's like, sure, like, okay, if, if, you know, well, let's look at the low end. Right. But you're like, well, if you're working on folk music, like what low end? Um, so there's, for me, the starting piece is why am I going to do any, why am I doing anything that I'm doing on this material? And the answer to that question is, is that it, the, whatever it is that I'm working on to begin with needs to matter most. So what I like to do is I like to find what I call the nugget and kind of, which is to me is like the core of the song. And so in pop music, generally that'll be like a chorus. One of the bigger choruses generally where you're like, Hey, here's like the, the, you know, the meat and potatoes of this piece. And then I'll go in from there and like, you know, sometimes these, you know, the sessions that'll show up are in the 200 channel count. Um, and so it's very difficult to be like, well, I'm just going to mix everything and just start at channel one and just work your way to channel 200. And it, when I'm done, it'll be mixed. But like, you know, what are these channels and why are they, are they happening all at the same time? And, and do they change? And if I find what I would consider the nugget, 
Um, the next thing that I do is to just try to reduce, literally mute everything until I break the song to be like, what matters? I mean, you'll know, you'll be like, oh, the song is still playing. I can hear the chorus and there's vocals. I can hear the vocals and they're saying the titular line and like all this stuff to be able to be like, cool, this is it. But like, if I mute backing vocals, you know, and it's say it's just ad libs or, you know, something in the back and you can still hear the vocals. I'm like, well, that doesn't matter to the nugget. And just to get to this sort of like, it is only this channel count out of 200. That's like, you know, and again, if we're talking pre- like, like, like predominantly pop music or, and when I say pop, I mean like, you know, pretty much anything contemporary that we're working on right now. So EDM, you know, uh, pop music, rock, hip hop, any of that stuff is all going to have kind of the same formula to it. It's like, we've got some drums and then we've got some low end elements and then we've got some rhythmic melodic elements and then we've got top end melodies and then we generally have like vocals. And so in all of that, you can generally find some sort of, you know, the minutia in what matters most and then just start working on that. Because if that stuff doesn't matter, it's like, sure, okay, maybe you, you know, especially if we're talking like electronic music, oh, you've got the fucking buildup and it's amazing and all the elements of the buildup are perfect and the risers are exquisite and everything, you know, crescendos to this perfect piece. But like if the kick of the drop doesn't work, all of that work you just did doesn't matter. It just doesn't. It's like, it kind of like invalidates it all. Yeah, I mean, well, not even not necessarily invalidates it, but just like you just did a bunch of work and you spent a bunch of time and you're not anywhere closer to your goal. Like maybe mm-hmm. you are, but there's no way to say definitively that that will carry. And I think maybe you've even ended up in these scenarios, maybe not so much now with your workflows, but definitely when I was first starting out that I would get sucked into these rabbit holes on really interesting, cool things. And then when I would like zoom out and take a look at the rest of the song, I would realize that all this work that I just put into this one section now has to change because I've either gotten the high frequency content built up so much that now I have to EQ that back off again so that the drop happens and sounds open or I've gotten it so wide in this one section that there's no more width to go. Like Mm -hmm. the edges of my mix frame or my mastering frame, I've now like exceeded. And so now I have to like double work. I'm like, well, I've done all this work, but let's now scale that back a bit. So now I can get this other thing to fit. You see uh, something that I see a lot of engineers, uh, producers doing these days is exactly that. And the way they solve it is on their master. They'll just put like uh, some sort of, utility that turns the width down by 50%, turns the level down by like a few dB and then maybe like an EQ to make it slightly less bright. And then they'll just have that turned on on the master channel for the entire intro slash build up and breakdown or whatever. And then when the drop happens, they'll just turn it off. (laughs) It's like a force dynamic. (laughs) I have seen this and I do sometimes sing similar, like just depending on if you need to edge a drop out, if you're just like, hey, this has gotten too big and I need to do something to kind of squeeze the drop back into this. But for me, usually that's like, it's like, it it feels like double work. It feels like I've gone and done again, back to the sort of time quotient. Like if I can just do the work on the drop to get the drop or the chorus or whatever it is, this, this moment that I've quantified as being the nugget and the elements of the nugget, um, that all now fit together and sound massive and compared to our reference, which is another piece of this where people are like, well, but how do you know it's done? And it's like, well, we use references for everything we do. We start with references and references can be anything that's like generalized where it's like, oh, for us, it's like, um, you know, like these are, 
it would be in the same playlist, but are not even necessarily the same genre. It's not the same artist. It's not the same style. But like if it was on Spotify, there's some one song would come before and one song would come after all the way to it's like one artist in set. And then this is the song before the song that will be finishing. And this is the song that will play after. Um, or sometimes it's even like more of a one to one where you're like, this is almost an exact copy of this other song that we're now using as a reference to say, this is where the drum should live and this is where the highs should live. And so then I'll just sit there with that drop. I'll line up the same parts of the song. I mean, sometimes they're in different locations. Sometimes it's like, you know, drop two B that is the same thing that we're comparing as drop one, just depending on how they've done the arrangement. And I'll just make sure that it sounds almost one-to-one when it's like overall things, you know, like low end content, weight, imaging, punch, depth, frequency response, you know, basics of like balancing of elements. And then once that's good, then it's like, ah, I can sculpt everything off this. Now I have like a grounding with which to begin to proceed to the rest of the song. So uh, expanding left and right, going to the intro all the way to the end and then having that generally copy. Cause also if you find one of these moments, that's like, ah, I've got this drop or I've got this chorus or whatever. Oftentimes if you pick, you know, if you find the one that is the most fulfilled, the most big, the biggest crescendo that you have, and it does exist in multiple locations in the piece, again, sort of pop formulaic setup, um, that can, that work then copies more places. You're like, oh, I've done this work in this one section. So now I can just move my automation over here and I can move, if I had added any layers, I can move them over here and I can sort of begin to start to take what I've built in one place and it will work in, in multitudes of others. So it sort of like solves the first problem of like, first, why are you doing what you're doing? And then what constitutes the most important thing and then now that that is the most important thing, does that now live in other places? And so immediately, if you just start in that one place and, you, and you're clear that these are the elements that matter most, everything else can kind of just fit in and around that. Right, right. So you're basically asking like a bunch of questions every time, even though you're not using any templates or whatever, you ask sort of similar or the same questions for every tune and then just sort of answer them on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, exactly. Because you just never know. Like I, like I know a lot of people who work with templates and I think that if you're an artist, there's no reason to not do that, especially if you're trying to standardize some of your work. You know, if it's like, um, you know, you're looking to get similar sounds or you're looking to sort of have like continuity on a record or whatever. But just as an engineer, I think having, answering those questions gives us the ability as an outfit to be able to take on, you know, artists that range from sort of like rock EDM crossover stuff to like pop punk to hip hop to bass music to house. It's just because each of those will have its different rule set, you know, and especially when we get into like the nuances between genres, pushing a clap too far forward in a house track changes it from one type of house to another. You know, and if you were to balance that the same way with bass music, you're like, oh, well, the clap is this equal in bass music, but this is no longer normal house just by how loud the fucking clap is. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Um, <clears throat> so you get both kinds of work, mixing and mastering. Uh, how, how much of your work is mixing versus mastering? And when you are doing a mix down, are you often also the mastering engineer or is it usually if you get a mix job, you're just the mix engineer and then you'll pass it off to somebody else for mastering? Um, it's pretty rare at this point that we don't also do the master. There's been a couple times when that's been the case, when they've had somebody with like a bigger name that they wanted on the vehicle to sort of pull some weight when it came to the masters. Um, and there's been some other times when like we've done the, um, the DSP release and someone else has done the, um, 
the the mix and master for radio, just because again, like if they're like the radio person, there's a lot of weight that they can lend towards radio play. If if the DJs, if the radio DJs know that this was mixed and mastered by that person, they they just have trust that this will go off and won't be a problem to their listeners, or they're going to get a bunch of complaints. Um, not that my music gets a bunch of complaints, but you just never know. Um, so they tend to err on that. And those people tend to make a shit ton of money, you know, like 5k to 10k per mix and master. Um, and yeah, like crazy, crazy budgets. Um, if you're, if you're a really big name here in LA and you've been doing radio for like the last 20 or 30 years, radio mixes and masters, you'll, you'll pull some huge, huge budgets. Um, but for the most part, it's like we do everything in house. I think that helps us be a bit competitive that there's no other step that like what the artist is approving is basically done. And that, you know, whatever changes they want, there won't be some sort of opaque secondary step that then is like, oh, um, you know, this is going to be different in X, Y, and Z way. And we don't exactly know what that is. And then we're going to have to go with this like, you know, oh, we got the master and now we need to push the vocal forward or backward or, oh, we're getting some distortion in this section. We need to like tuck some instruments or whatever it may be. We kind of do it all in house. And so our clients get an opportunity to kind of like understand like the final output. And then also we have the mix session and the master session running in real time. So instead of like the traditional way of like one piece and then the other, we'll just be able to do all of it kind of at once. Right. And what you mean by that is basically like you're mastering in the mix session, right? So you'll have all of your channels and then on the master, you'll just put your mastering stuff, correct? Yeah. So what I usually do is like get the mix going and basically, you know, locate the nugget and then get that to a point where I think it's fucking awesome versus um, the reference, understanding that the references are often like significantly louder than whatever it is that I'll be doing in the mix stage. But I'll get like all the cleanup done. We'll go through this whole process and we'll get it to a point where I'm pretty confident in it. And then I'll begin mocking up a master bus with it. Just something that I feel like it needs. And again, I think we can go into some more of these technicals. I mean, just recently you posted about not even having anything um, on the master bus in Ableton, which I, I think definitely like a, want to get yeah. into that at some point as well. Um, but I kind of want I kind of want to finish off on this mix master tangent, and then we can get into sort of breaking the rules a bit. Yeah. So basically, in that space, I mean, again, we don't. I don't have rule sets. So if if there is that master bus is sort of TBD. It's like if we're doing something that requires like heightened transient response and incredibly loud. Uh, RMS or LUFs, however you want to calculate that, um, the master bus would be unique to that scenario. And like I said, well, we can go into that a little bit here in a minute. But if it's not, if it's something more traditionally pop or something that has to be sort of in this contained like, oh, mastered for iTunes, MFIT um, uh, parts orders that we're going to make need to have this sort of n- minus point something overall peak threshold so when itunes does this up sampling the square waves will turn into round ones and they won't be clipping and so we'll need to actually create sort of artificial limited headroom where we'll say okay we'll, we'll cap this master at like you know minus 0.3 or you know even sometimes a minus 0.5 depending on how loud it is and if it's something and you're like talking bulk, about peak level here right Not peak lofts. level yeah totally yeah, yeah peak level 0.3 lofts would be incredibly loud <laughs> yes, totally. Which again, we'll get into here in a minute. But yeah, like so, just in peak in peak level, we would want to cap it artificially below zero. So, so, when those, so what is? Yeah. yeah, I'm curious. Like, uh, can you please explain this? Because um, 
like some artists, right? Like Jade Cicada, he'll only ever, like he masters his own stuff, but he, his stuff will only ever come out with, uh, if you put it in Ableton or whatever, it's always negative one dB. Yeah. And any master he does for anybody else, I've seen his masters always come out that way as well. It's always negative one dB. Yep. And I just don't understand why why people do that. Like I always put mine just at zero and I never think it sounds bad on Spotify. So yeah, what's going on with that? So there's a, there's, I don't know, I don't know that, that it particularly matters in the output, but there is a technical about it that does matter and can create an edge case where you would end up with noticeable distortions. So basically, and what, what is it that is creating that noticeable distortion if it's at zero and you put it into distro? So basically what happens is, is, uh, specifically in a situation with like, um, iTunes, right. Or any of these formats where they might apply a level of upsampling or even downsampling, either way you want to look at it. And can um, you also just explain upsampling and downsampling quickly? Yeah. So super quick, basically it's where you take a file format and whatever sample rate it is at, you will increase or decrease that sample rate. So let's just pretend like, like 44.1, right? It's like the industry yeah. standard, which means every second of audio, there's 44,100 samples. samples. Yeah. Happening per second. Um, and that gets into Nyquist and all this other stuff of why that's the case, but we'll just, we'll just start there. We don't have to go at all the details. Um, so you have this many samples per second happening, and let's just say we'll, we'll go higher, right? So in this case, I'm submitting a um, the highest quality possible to submit to iTunes, 192,000 samples per second, 192 kilohertz sample rate, and 24-bit. I send that into iTunes, and I say, this is my master file. And so then iTunes will create um, a varying degree of other sample rates depending on um, what you're listening to. And that also can be downsampled in real time. And I'm not sure if iTunes does that, but I do know in their catalog, they'll create, um, a varying degree of number of these based upon which quality you're selecting. If you have a professional account and this varies by DSP, but either way, you're going to go from one sample rate to another. And what happens when you do that is you end up with these, and this is only, this only applies to masters that sort of have these squared tops to their waveforms. So, so clipping the master. <laughs> yeah, basically, if you have this sort of squared off wave, you know, there's no, square waves are sort of like uh, technical impossibilities in audio. Even square waves in digital physically can't be square waves in your system, like your speakers, right. they, can't they might make... appear to be a square wave in the in the audio file, but there is some sort of calculation that's having to happen between that top squared off part to essentially round it off because the speaker actually can't physically move in that way, right? Yeah, the, yeah. It's a, any of the transducers that you're using can't they, they don't have a zero response time, right? So right, because there, there, has, yeah. there has to be like some physical movement of the speaker forward and backwards, which is a representation of the waveform that is happening like many, many times per second to create the sound that you hear and, and you can't possibly just in no time at all go from, say, one position, which is, say, a centimeter of uh, refraction or whatever you call it, and then a centimeter mm -hmm. of contraction or whatever the fuck that other one's called. Yeah, compression and rarefaction. Yeah, Compression yeah, totally. and rarefaction, correct, right? Because, like, yeah. to jump from one to the other, it'd be basically like, 
you're breaking the rules of time. Yeah, you'd space. break causality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You and Einstein would have an issue with you at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, so would whoever invented our universe. Right. So um, the the computer, like digitally, at some point, has to do some sort of calculation to say, all right, there's a point of the waveform here, even though the top of it is squared off, the other point is here, like let's say 10 samples apart. I'm going to just round that off in some way that I see fit that I think makes sense. And yeah. essentially, digitally, that looks like one number here, no numbers for 10 samples, another number here. Let's do the calculation to be like, what would that curve look like? Yeah, and that's literally the best way to think about it is like there, there will be, if you think that like, you know, suddenly this is just some plateau in a digital system, as soon as you start, you know, changing the sample rate or going to any of your transducers, there begins to become the plateau turns into a hill. And so if you're, if the plateau stops at zero, this new curve will extend above zero the same way if you're making, you know, rounded waveforms, that curve doesn't exist anymore. And so the, the inter, what there, it begins to create what are called intersample peaks. And those intersample peaks oftentimes can extend above your zero reference. Gotcha. And so you make a when, negative one and then that way it gives it a little bit of space to make that curve happen, right? Yeah. And again, it's 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 debatable whether or not any of this is noticeable. And we'll get into this back to like what is distortion and like I think when we start talking about this, like, you know, everything over the master bus being maxed. Um, and no master bus at all and no limiting and all this other stuff and like whether or not there's pleasurable artifacts in that or not. But like it's debatable whether or not the artifacts that will become present are even noticeable or aren't pleasurable or that the system can't handle the intersample peaks. Um, but as just a good, I guess, rule of practice that you would want to have it lower so when that does happen, you're limiting the possibility of potential artifacts at the listening stage or at the DSPs, basically after the master's already been sent off. Right, right. Um, yeah, so for, for mastering for distribution, you might want to do that. Um, what are some other things that you look at when mastering for something that you know for sure is going to go through a DSP like DistroKid or Symphonic Distribution or any of the other ones, LabelWorks or whatever, and, and eventually it will end up on Spotify, uh, Tidal, iTunes, Apple Music, all of that kind of stuff, YouTube. Um, what, are, what are some other things that you might take into account when, uh, let's say, most of the people listening to this are probably making electronic music and they're probably making electronic music pretty loud. Yeah. So what are some things that you would uh, suggest to people um, such as myself and others listening to this podcast to do if we're doing our self-masters and sending it off to distribution to minimize any issues that might happen. Because I know well, that I there's like yeah. a lot of talk going around also about, oh, you got to make it like negative 12 luffs or however many because it gets normalized to that in Spotify anyway unless you turn the setting off, which many people are not. So like there's all yeah. that to think about too. But I mean, personally, I don't give a shit anymore. I just like send it off at like whatever amount of luffs. I don't really even care. I just mix hot, make it sound good, put a reference in. If it sounds as loud as the reference and whatever, I just render it and call it a day. But, yeah, um, I mean, to yeah, to I mean, to speak on that front, I also, like, I, I don't leave any bits on the table. I go all the way to zero. <laughs> right, and there's an actual well, argument so. to be made for doing that too, right? Because, like, um, let's say you have 16 bits, which is what pretty much every master gets rendered out as when it's going to distribution. I mean, yep. I think you can submit 24-bit. For the most, it's, most part, it's 16. Um, that gives you uh, however many points of resolution, right? Like let's say yep. it's, I think 
96,000, I think, is possible. I think it's, it's 96,000 is 16 bit. And then, right. Like well, well how, yeah, however many it is. Let's say it's 100,000 or a million or however many. I think it's in, I think it's in the millions, but um, that's every single possible volume that it could be, right? It could be 96,000 possible different volumes. That's what bit depth is. Um, if you go to 24 bit, then it can be, yeah, something like a couple of million different possible volumes. And if you go to 32 bit, it can be like a couple of hundred million different possible volumes. Yes. Um, so I guess, yeah, when rendering something out at, at 16 bit, um, fuck, I, I lost my train of thought by thinking about how many million. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The argument, the, the argument is, yeah. for using, uh, for mixing loud is that you're then using every potential possible volume. So you can technically get it more dynamic, right? Like by hitting zero, you're enabling yourself to be more dynamic than if you never even come close to zero. Well, I guess like it's 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 the, the way that I see it. I don't disagree with that contextualization, but I think like there's it's a pretty miscon there's a lot of misconceptions around the difference between like 24 bit and 16 bit and what that actually gives you because what we're saying is like infinite quiet is the same no matter if you have 16 bit or 24 bit right like no volume is exactly the same point right and getting to no volume is exactly the same point and zero or our or our maximum in db full scale which is what we're talking about here in 16 bit and 24 bit we're talking about db full scale or dbfs that that zero point is also the same and so the it's the resolution it's the points just to like have this be a part of the lexicon of people's you know conversation because i know this is com constantly gets uh, misconstrued is it's the it's the it's the resolution of potential values between this zero peak and minus infinity at the bottom and so it just gives you more options it's it gives you 24 bit i think it's 65 million and or 16 million and 16 bit is 65000 possible places you can put a dot on this sort right. of, you know, waveform of being like, is it this beaky or is it this beaky? But again, zero and minus infinity are in the same place. So it just gives you um, a higher resolution of values. That said, um, you know, if you, if you are stopping at minus one, then your total, you know, signal to noise ratio your, or your dynamic range is one dB lower than it could be. So... Yeah, it does prevent you from potentially being louder. So if that's right. something that you want to do, yeah. For uh, just like the conversation, so, so it's more all-inclusive, the number of bits, uh, sorry, the number of possible values per sample for 16-bit is 65,536. For 24-bit, yeah. it's 16,777,216. And for 32-bit, it's about 4.3 million. Nice. Uh, sorry, 4.3 billion. billion. Yeah. Billion. Yeah. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess this is like a good segue into clipping the master. So, something I've been doing lately, which a lot of people uh, didn't know about before I posted my video the other day on Instagram, and also I didn't know for a long time either, is that you can just clip the Ableton master all you want because the whole thing is happening in a 32-bit system. And it doesn't actually distort because it has these 42 billion different possible volumes, which means it can go well over full scale without distorting. And then when you hit the 16-bit uh, 
option in the render window and render out your master, it just clips everything above that. And so long as you're okay with clipping, which most people are anyway, like if you're putting saturator on your master or like K-clip or even a limiter, really, anything that's just chopping the tops off, it's no different in my opinion. It's just the, the Ableton one uh, when letting Ableton do it instead of uh, somebody else's plugin just adds less coloration because literally their output is just like, just chop the tops off, do nothing else. Whereas if you use something like, you know, K-Clip or Standard Clip or Camel Fat or something, there's always like a tiny bit of coloration I find in those sure. uh, in those ones. And I think it's probably got to do with the same reason that I will just throw a random neuro base into a section just for the sake of doing it because I can. I think coders <laughs> probably also do this too, right? They're like, all right, I'm going to make a clipper, but they're like, but I could also, you know, and then just do a bunch of other shit to it as well. And I'm sure they obviously give you options as well where you can just clip the the tops of things without coloring it at all. But yeah, I'd, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, the issues and benefits and drawbacks and everything for, for this type of render yeah well i think what you touched on is is that i think the first piece of this is um just for us to decide what is technically distortion and what is not because i think that once you get that first of all what you're talking about is absolutely possible and people have been doing it for years um this is a and has been a standard mastering technique um that pretty much everybody in the mastering world has been doing I think like since tape even it's like it goes way back to like hitting gear hard and enjoying um the artifacts that that creates because it is there are art no matter what we do all of these systems I think to we, they are nonlinear and what I mean by that is is you get something different than out than you're putting in so for me I think we we get hung up on the term distortion meaning grit or meaning um, crunchiness or meaning sort of like a big shift audibly in one sort of process. Uh, and so the, the nonlinearity there is something where like you think like distorted guitar. So you think like a distorted vocal or, you know, you think like crunchy and gritty. And for me, distortion just means, um, at least in this context and, and in most contexts, it's this nonlinear process. So the right, whatever I mean, we're sending into the system is, turn is different. Any, yeah, I mean, you can turn a signal down in your mix by one decibel and technically it's a distortion from what it once was. Absolutely. But I think for the sake of this conversation, uh, distortion, in my opinion, or in the way I think of it, is... Uh, it can be two things, I guess. Distortion can be like a creative effect that you use because you want something to sound grittier and crunchier uh, or a distortion, uh, like say, I would probably use the word like audible, audibly distorted or audible distortion um, to basically mean like an error, something that sounds like an error. So like a quantization error um, sure. or some sort of like unintentional uh, crunching or grit or something that, that sounds like a problem in the sure. master. Well, so that, but I want to, I want to stay in the nuance for a second before we go from one to the other, because I think that this, this matters. And this is where the mastering engineers have been here and the rest of the public has been told not to do this. Um, and so I think it's important to stay in the nuance for a second as I, as I explain my thoughts behind, behind this piece, because the, 
no matter what you do, right? We're already talking about, let's just say, you know, you have a bunch of hot as fuck signals and they hit a limiter. And now suddenly these waveforms have gone from being big and round and going way over zero to now being square and sitting right at zero, like boom, right to the top. And anytime you have square waveforms on the sides of those squares, like as the wave transitions from this sort of peak moment to any of its like uh, preceding to the peak or, or, or uh, post-peak receding back towards zero, you get what we call sideband harmonics. And those sideband harmonics are oftentimes things that we find as pleasurable, right? Like that's when you, when you saturate a bass and suddenly you take this like pure tone and it turns into all of these upper band harmonics. We like the sound of those things. Um, and so that, that by definition is distortion and it's adding harmonic content that wasn't present at the beginning of this path. And we qualify that as being oftentimes something pleasurable and it's become ubiquitous with modern music. And so no matter what you do, whichever system you pick, if you're squaring your waveforms in your master, you're ending up with artifacts. Doesn't matter if you can quote unquote say they're good or bad by definition they are square and you have now sideband harmonics and so it is by definition distorted and you are by definition adding artifacts so that piece for me matters because we have all of this dogma around clipping and distortion <laughs> and all of these like things that you know, people, myself included, like it took me a long time. I came into this process uh, of like being iffy about what actually happens on the master bus when I got really serious into mastering probably in the last 10 years or so and looking into like what the larger guys, women included, are doing women and non-binary included are doing within the mastering sphere. And um, there is... Um, most of them have been hitting converters where they'll go out into analog outboard and they'll do their analog outboard thing. But then when they come back in, they'll come back in hot. And a lot of these like prism converters or Burl or uh, Lavery give you an option to even step up analog into the converters by specified values like 0.2 dB at a time. So you can get this saturation, this harmonic coloring out of the clipping, which gives you these sideband harmonics, which gives you this richer, fuller sound that doesn't have a timing profile associated with it like a limiter or a compressor would. Um, and especially the really expensive outboard has these great colorations that once you start to understand what that sounds like, you'll, you'll hear it in a lot of the popular music that you're consuming these days. And so they've been doing that again. Like I, I'm like, since people would hit tape, they'd hit tape really fucking hot and the tape would oversaturate and color the drums and you'd get these big punchy drums out of just hitting the fuck out of some tape. Um, and that happens all the time, even with amps, guitarists do this all the time, but like specifically in like the recording chain and in mastering, they've been doing this pretty much since the beginning of them being like, hey, we want fuller, we want this sort of like overhyped Hollywood version of what drums sound like. Because if you listen to actual drums, when you get into this business and you hear what an actual basic vocal sounds like, 
that is fucking night and day. It's like a punch in a movie. It's the complete difference between like a punch of somebody or a gun going off in a movie versus a punch in real life or a gun going off in real life. They're completely fucking polar opposite. And so everything's been kind of overhyped. And so we're searching for that. And these processes, um, I mean, again, a lot of people, and there's a shit ton of dogma and I'm probably going to get hate for saying, yeah, just go hot, do whatever the fuck you want. But, um, it, it is and has been part of the mastering process and it's just been something that they've sort of kept aside and I don't know why there's been all the information to be like wait until there's a professional it's like I guess like doing you know your own dentistry like you know you should know what the fuck you're doing if you're going to start rooting around in your mouth but like they don't want people knowing that these are things that you can do and tools that the professionals have been doing for decades um, and so what's happening is you're making, and, and this is just my take on it, you're making a qualitative judgment about the difference between, let's say, putting a limiter on the master bus and then the limiter by definition has a timing profile, right? So there's an attack phase, there's a release phase. Maybe there's some other settings depending on the limiter that you're using. Maybe it has some oversampling or some soft clipping options. Maybe it's true peak, maybe it's not. But all of these things, as you're mentioning, color your sound. And there's another option that you've had this whole time, which is it's been running. It's just how it runs. No one decided that this would be a thing that they would do. The DAWs created floating point maths, allowing us to go over zero and at the same time, giving us a higher resolution for summing our signals, which is nice because the more resolution you have for all these inter-sample inter summings, the, um, the, the better the resolution is for the final sum signal. And by definition of giving us those floating point masks, now we're able to operate. If you are a little hot, it's able to go over zero. You're able to operate in that sort of false headroom. But for most of us, we've been monitoring in full scale, so not floating point. So the DAW automatically, when it's outputting to core audio, when it's outputting, outputting to your, uh, I forget what the PC one is called. Like ACO um, or Yeah, MMA. ACO or AAX. Yeah, or any of those guys. Um, or not AAX, but yeah, ACO, and there's another one. Um, the uh, all of those are in are in 24 bit, and your right. interface, especially like my my mastering grade interface, is all 24 bit internal maths, and so um, it's it's a thing called truncating, and it's basically saying here's one bit depth, here's another bit depth. Instead of dithering between the two or adding noise to sort of find the in-between samples and then doing rounded math to be able to say, okay, you're closer to this one, we'll move you here, or you're further away from this one, we'll move you here, we'll just go, okay, well, it's 32-bit floating point, and now suddenly it's 24-bit, and that is, that is what we're doing. It's just a thing called truncation, and we've had that opportunity to do that for a really long time, but just everybody thought not to, and... Another piece of the thing that you said, which I think is, which is crucial to this conversation is that not all sounds work in this floating point area when truncated, like go ahead and take an 808 or just a base, just create a solid pure sine wave and put that right up to zero DB full scale. So it's got, you'll have no artifacts, you'll have no distortion. So I think what the problem is with those ones is because yeah. they're such a pure tone and because they're like the, the most rounded like the speaker should be doing the most fluid natural motion it can possibly do sure the the artifacts there become way more obvious way quickly but also yeah. i think you also don't have all of these crazy high frequency like the the sine wave that you're you know hearing those distortions on is still doing that in the 
like your sub is still doing that in in these clipped masters. The problem or the the benefit, I suppose, is you don't notice it because it. of yeah, because of all the hi hats and all the shit over the top. It's just auditory masking. Yeah, but that's kind of the point that I'm making is that I'm just like it's not that it's not that the distortion isn't there. It's not that floating point doesn't allow you to have no distortion when truncation occurs. There's not a magic thing in floating point. It's, it's, if it's getting truncated back down to zero at the end of the stage, then sideband harmonics will be present. Right. The and distortion is there. It's just whether or not you, you hear it or it not and yep. care about it. Yeah. And, and if you don't yeah. hear it, then in my Who opinion, cares? it's not there. <laughs> all it is there. Well, but like, yeah. It's just, it's, you just don't, it's, or, or you do hear it, you, but you like it. And I think that's right. the qualification it sounds like here. It's a, it sounds like it's a part of the... It doesn't yeah. sound out, out of place. No, it is a part of I mean, that's the thing about the music that we're working on these days, especially when it comes to EDM. It's like, that is the sound. We're already doing that with the million aughts that you're sticking on channel or right. the fucking the Saturn that you throw in there and then the distortion and then the aught. And you know what I mean? Like, we're already making these things square and distorted with tons of sideband harmonics. Right, so right. we like that. So why not ha having it you know, not, or being afraid to have it in the mastering stage, I think is where, or just not trusting your ears that you're like, Hey, does this sound good when it's in this format? Mm. Which is another piece that I often do is I'll work over zero starting. I'll start off over zero because if I start to hear these artifacts, I can mitigate them in this stage and not wait super cold working at like minus 16 summing and mm. then get to mastering and then suddenly be like, oh, this is folding like a motherfucker in this one section. What do I do? Do I change things out? Do I hide it? That's another piece. It's like, you know, you get into like, how do I mask the distortion here? Right. Like use sort of intentional dithering by adding white noise and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like right. if you if you have a section that's got a pure sub and an 808 and a vocal and they're going to meet over zero, like we're going to hear intermodulation most likely on the vocal from the sub. How can we have that section play nice with the other sections? Can we mask it? Do we have to pull it down? Do we need to make some determinations at that stage? Like basically mix the entire song for that one section because it just won't go over zero or you don't want to compromise on the pure tone of the sub or whatever. But it's just like this the awareness factor that distortion will just be present and then integrating that into your workflow around, am I comfortable with the type of distortion that I'm getting? Cause I mean, you just listen to things like hundred gex or especially like a lot of this, um, like the SoundCloud rap or these genres like funk, the, the, the distortion is like part of the sound. And I think that we get into these, like the, the, you know, whoever is the boss of the dogma and especially like, you know, internet chat rooms where everyone's fighting over something being correct or not, <laughs> instead of just listening to what sounds good and then doing what sounds good and potentially saving time and energy. Like you notice, you're just like, Hey, I don't, now I don't have to do, I can do all my mastering quote unquote in the mix stage. And maybe I do some bus work, but for the most part, I don't need to fret over this master bus or how hot it is. And then by not having a timing profile, my transients are exactly what I'm hearing in the room. I'm right, right. whatever transient response I want. I have that now there's never, I can turn the snare up and it'll just keep getting louder. Right. And so, uh, you just mentioned sometimes you'll mix something and then you'll try and master it. And then one section will just start dying and you'll be like, shit, I got to fix yeah. that. Um, so there's probably like an argument to be made there for even starting with the master bus almost, right? And then working your way backwards from there, like putting uh, things on the master to make the mix as loud as you kind of want it to begin with, seeing what parts fold and then starting the mix process, right? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I work over zero. So like I won't even have anything on the master bus, but I'll start hot. I'll start over zero. Kicks over zero, snares over zero, bass is over zero, everything in that headroom, red, 
just red hot whole time. Right. And then from there, if it's not sounding good uh, and, and it's something I need to achieve. And again, like this is in context, this is, I wouldn't start a vocal like, only mix. Like if I was working on like a barbershop quartet or something, I wouldn't be cooking it like this. This is more me talking to the EDM crowd or like, especially like the current pop crowd, hip hop, stuff like that. Like absolutely. Yeah. Over zero to begin with, because then you're not going to be surprised by what's coming le- like n- later within the, the process. And, there, right, right. and again, I won't have anything on the master bus because I think that can sometimes obscure things, especially if you have a limiter, like the limiter will start grabbing your transients. And so you'll think to turn your kick up. And then if you turn your limiter off, you'll hear that your kick is like 16 yeah, dB the drums too loud. are like way louder than everything way else. A, a solution yeah. that I used for that for a long time was I was mixing into limiters. And then in the end, when I wanted to master it, or even whilst I was mixing, I'd just put transient shapers before the, the limiter. Sure. Or after I do that. That's the same thing. It's like, I'll, I will work above zero with limiting, which is something that we've developed internally here where we will gain down into, because again, these overages, maybe they get a little too extreme at times. Right. So so you're like, like a utility on or something, turn it down and then process and then turn it back up. Turn it back up the exact equal amount. Yes. You can come down like 3dB and that will actually move your limiter 3dB over zero. And then you come back up 3dB. And so your limiters peak of zero is now actually plus three. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. Another thing you can do is uh, before clippers or something like that is put an EQ and like put a, um, a low shelf, just taking everything from, 200 hertz and down down by like 12 db and then put another eq after the clipper and just push it by 12 db so it's like yeah it's a good one you're just making the limiter or the clipper um be way less aggressive yet still do all the clipping stuff that you want to do and just not touching the lows as much because the lows are always like like the first things to fuck out yeah it's like filtering the side chain if there was one in a clipper Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so when mixing all, uh, like extremely hot like this, do you ever run into problems when going to press vinyl? Um, that's a really good question. No, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had, we'll just reduce. Um, and oftentimes the, you know, any, at least for us, anytime that we're going to do vinyl presses, there'll be another mastering engineer in that chain Mm. that will have an opportunity to cut the vinyl quieter because you just will want it you don't need like a, you can't, I don't know that you can have like a minus two or minus one luffs I think you on can, a vinyl record. but you can only have like one track per side then, right? Oh yeah, just to be able to have the size of the waveforms Yeah, I think it's all fit. about runtime yeah, that at that sense. point. Like yeah. the louder something becomes, then you can only have like... Yeah, because I just in, know that you can in, bounce the needles. This is, yeah. that's where I kind of get out of my, my, my wheelhouse is not so much in vinyl, but I do know that those can be, especially with too much low end, it can be a serious problem and you can start to bounce the, the needle. Uh, yeah, and stereo information too, because then each side of the groove has like slightly different uh, grooves and yeah, that can bounce the needle out as well. But yeah, from my understanding is that if things are hitting at like negative six full scale, but like they're still pretty compressed, like uh, which will then play back if, if you run it through a meter at probably like negative 10 lofts or something, then you can squeeze about 20 minutes per run side. Okay. But I think oh. um, anything more than that, you need to start severely cutting down the run time to like 15 minutes, 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That makes complete sense just so that you can have the size of those waveforms accurately represented without it trying to like jump up between each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been going through this recently with my new remix album, trying to 
uh, take, because I don't want to get the whole thing remastered because it'll be expensive, time yeah, consuming. Exactly. Yep. Uh, getting the pre-masters off all the remixes will be a pain in the ass, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, I'm just trying to like figure it out by creating these like sort of 20 minute WAV files to send to the mastering plant. So essentially, I guess that would be considered like cutting the lacquer almost in a digital world, perhaps. I don't know. I don't, I don't exactly yeah. know what happens when you send it to the plants or that whole side of things is a total black art to me, but yeah, vinyl is cool. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's some the really... green way, there's like a lot of shitty PV, poly, polyvinyl chloride vinyls getting around. Oh yeah, there's definitely, it is one of the dirtiest industries. <laughs> yeah, ben, ben Jordan has a really good video on it and some of the points he makes in there are pretty crazy. Like if you take uh, vinyls to like a, like a uh, they call it in Australia a tip, um, but I guess here it's like like a garbage disposal place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the the plant or whatever that you take your rubbish to, they won't actually accept them. They'll tell you. Oh, it's like, like hazardous take, waste. Yeah, exactly. They'll tell Holy you. Holy shit. Like, yeah, they won't even take them. It's funny that we're kind of coming back while. into this. Yeah, it's like it's got a resurgence in all of this green stuff, but then it turns out that it's absolutely, <laughs> you know, toxic waste. You can't <laughs> away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, hey, man, I appreciate you having this chat with me. It's been a pleasure as always. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man, this has been really fun. Let's uh, do it again if you got some time. Thanks yeah, for having probably. me. All righty. Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, you should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, but but just know that, that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, just just put that out there. I know what I'm doing.